0: Welcome to the 227th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with New York Times bestselling author, James Lee Burke. This is the third time that I've interviewed James Lee Burke. He is the author of the very popular Dave Robichaux series of mystery novels. In addition, Burke is a bread Bread Loaf Fellow and Guggenheim Fellow and he's been awarded two Edgar Awards for Best Novel of the Year, as well as the Grand Master Award by the Mystery Writers of America. Stay tuned for my interview with James Lee Burke. And just one audio note. Unfortunately, the audio of my questions in this interview is less than stellar, but bear with me um, and you will hear the answers from James Lee Burke. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing
1: Podcast. My guest today is New York Times best-selling novelist James Lee Burke. Burke's latest novel, Robichaux, is the latest novel in the Dave Robichaux series featuring the former New Orleans detective. James Lee Burke, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Well, thanks for having me on your show again.
1: Sure. Well, can you read the first couple of pages of your new novel, Robichaux?
2: Well, I have a copy right here in front of me and I'll Start out right now. Like an early 19th century poet, when I have melancholy moments and feel the world is too much for us and that late and soon we lay waste to our powers in getting and spending, I'm forced to pause and reflect upon my experiences with the dead and the hold they exert on our lives. This may seem a macabre perspective on one's life. But at a certain point, it seems to be the only one we have. Mortality is not kind, and do not let anyone tell you it is. If there is such a thing as wisdom, and I have serious doubts about its presence in my own life, it lies in the acceptance of the human condition and perhaps the knowledge that those who have passed on are still with us, out there in the midst showing us the way, sometimes uttering a word of caution from the shadows, sometimes visiting us in our sleep, as bright as a candle burning inside a basement that has no windows. On a winter winter morning, among white clouds of fog out at Spanish Lake, I would see the boys in Butternut, "'flashing their way through the flooded cypress, "'their muskets held above their heads, "'their equipment tied with rags so it wouldn't rattle. "'I was standing no more than ten feet from them, "'although they took no notice of me, "'as though they knew I had not been born yet, "'and their travail and sacrifice were not mine to bear.' Their faces were lean from privation, as pale as wax, their hair uncut, the rents in their uniforms stitched clumsily with string. Their mouths were pinched, their eyes luminous with caution. The youngest soldier, a drummer boy, could not have been older than twelve. On one occasion, I stepped into the water to join them. Even then, none acknowledged my presence. The drummer boy stumbled and couldn't right himself, struggling with the leather strap around his neck and the weight of his drum. I reached out to help him and felt my hand and arm sink through his shoulder. A shaft of sunlight pierced the canopy, turning the fog into white silk. In less than a second, the column was gone. Long ago, I ceased trying to explain events such as these to either myself or others. Like many my age, I believe people in groups are to be feared and that arguing with others is folly and the knowledge of one generation cannot be passed down to the next. Those may seem cynical sentiments, but there are certain truths you keep inside you and do not defend lest you cheapen and then lose them all together. Those truths have less to do with the dead than the awareness that we are no different from them, that they are still with us and we are still with them, and there is no afterlife but only one life, a continuum of, in which all time occurs at once, like a dream inside the mind of God. Why should an old man, thrice widowed, dwell on things that are not demonstrable and have nothing to do with the reasonable view of the world? Because only yesterday, on a broken sidewalk, in a shabby neighborhood at the bottom of St. Claude Avenue, in the lower Ninth Ward of St. Bernard Parish, under a colonnade that was still twisted out of shape by Katrina, across from a liquor store with barred windows that stood under a live oak probably 200 years old, I saw a platoon of Confederate infantry march out of a field to the tune of darling Nellie Gray, and disappear through the wall of a gutted building and not exit on the other side.
1: Great. Well if someone listening <laughs>
2: if yes. Someone, if someone, Thank you.
1: yes, if someone listening hasn't heard about Robo Show yet, how would you describe your new novel?
2: Well, it's the twenty first in the series narrated uh, by the same character uh, and they're most of these novels are set in New Iberia or close by, and also they wander sometimes to Texas and to Florida and to Colorado and Montana. Uh, Dave, Dave show is... Less a participant than a witness to history, he's the everyman figure out of the medieval plays. The stories are out of Elizabethan theater and the Bible and uh, classical antiquity, uh, Greek mythology. That's where, that's where the stories come from. <laughs>
1: And, and do you remember um, when you started thinking about uh Show, Do you do you have any memory of like the original idea that led you to writing this novel?
2: Oh yes, because it it changed my whole career, it changed my life. <laughs> uh, no question about it. Um, I I started writing when I, I was a I was quite young, and I published my first story in the SLI. It's the University of Louisiana now um, literary magazine. When I was 19 years old, was uh, very, and I, I never wanted to be anything other than a writer since. Actually, I, I started writing when I was in the fifth grade. Not, not very well, but I, I wanted to be a writer back then. Anyway, I published three novels in New York during my early career. And I, my first novel, I finished. Um, when I was 23 years old, and it received a six-column banner review in the New York Times Sunday uh, insert, you know, the New York Times Literary Review. I never, I never got a review that big, <laughs> but it was my first one. And then I published two more, and I thought I was home free. Wow, was I wrong? I went 13 years in the middle of my career and I couldn't sell anything and I I don't know how many rejection slips I received. They were in the hundreds. I I wrote other novels that are still not published and uh, I was fishing with a friend of mine, Rick DeMarinas, who's also a novelist and we were in the Bitterroot, standing in the water in the Bitterroot River up here in Montana. And he said, Jim, you've written every other kind of book. Why don't you try a crime novel? He said, if you write two chapters, you can probably get an advance. And I'd never thought about what... Actually, my earlier novels were crime novels. But anyway, I thought about it. And three days later, Pearl, my wife, my wife Pearl, and our little girl Alfair, um, were in San Francisco, right down the street from Lawrence Ferlinghetti's bookstore, the City Lights bookstore, and I bought a legal pad, one of those yellow legal pads, and I walked about a block up the street from Ferlinghetti's place and sat down in an outdoor cafe, an Italian cafe, across from a Catholic church, and I started writing the first chapter in Longhand of the Neon Rain. And I wrote two chapters and I sent them to my old friend, Charles Williford, you know, who's a crime novelist. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew Charles for 20 years. And we were, <clears throat> he was a great guy. And, um uh, <clears throat> he wrote me back and he said, Jim, you may have created one of the most memorable, uh, <clears throat> crime story. M- narrators are cops. And, uh, American literature, you know, that's pretty good coming from Charles, because he he was a hardcore writer. I mean, he he didn't <laughs> he was a guy that kept the standard. Charles didn't give an inch when it came to his art. But you know, I I knew Charles all these years. He was in he was in the Horse Cavalry in 1936 at Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. And in World War two he went into armor and at the Battle of Arnheim, he took his tank, the Sherman tank through German lines and picked up twenty-three grunts. He piled them on his tank and took them all home and he received the Silver Star and the Quadriguer. He would never talk about it he never nobody would nobody knew that story. And I said, Charles, why don't you write about your war years? And he said, ah, James Jones and those fellows have done all that. I don't know who those fellows, they've, those fellows have done all that. But he was a great writer. Anyway, that was it. But uh, that's the creation of Dave Rovershow and the character himself. Comes from those failed novels that I never published. I wrote a novel about a young Cajun golden gloves fighter uh, named, D- Dave, Dave, name, named Dave named Dave Robichaux, who falls in love with a young woman who lives out by Spanish Lake, Bootsy Mouton, and uh, it was a young it was a young lovers story. And but that character and. Bootsy Mouton and New Iberia became uh, my obsession for quite a while. And I you know, I told you, i had been out of print 13 years. My novel, The Lost Get Back Boogie, had been rejected 111 times over nine years of submission. I sent it to... LSU Press and my wife had been telling me to do that for I don't know how long they published it and it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and I had just finished The Neon Rain and I sent it to New York and three three or five publishers bid on it I couldn't believe it and the third book in the series went up for auction and uh, it allowed us to Uh, Quit our jobs and we were living in the Midwest and buy a house up on a creek, you know, way on up a canyon in old Montana. This is a perfect place. It's like day one there. It's the first day of creation up there. (laughs) And it's a great, we had wood stoves and uh, uh, we had our own well and we're on a creek that. The water was absolutely pure. It was like perrier. It never felt the influences of the industrial age. We had a, a, a subterranean lake under the house. But anyway, uh, and then we were off and running, and, and I wrote other books, you know, the Holland books. And I I wrote one book about the Civil War called The White Doves at that, yeah. that It's one of my best books, actually. It takes place at Shiloh and around New Iberia and deals with the invasion of Southwest Louisiana by Nathaniel Banks in 1862 and the White League and, you know, the things that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the wars. You know, the White League was worse than the Klan. You know, it was a very violent time, but anyway... Uh,
0: well, this this latest
1: this, 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 this latest Robichaux novel. Do you do you remember kind of what led you or what idea you have when you sat down to originally work on that? Uh,
2: yeah. But again, I, I, a first-person narrator uh, is a challenge to the author for the following reason: the worst. Pronouns in the English language are I, me, my, mine, and myself because they all deal with the ego. And the character has to be a sympathetic one. Washington Irving once said. Uh, one of the greatest forms of intimacy and the purest form is relationship between an author and his audience. There's a reciprocity of trust there, and that first-person narrator has to be someone whom we admire and whom we trust. Okay. And Dave is that figure. He's the blue-collar knight, Iran. Uh He has his origins in Chauc- Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, The Good Knight. He's also the knight, Iran, in the um, Mordor Tour by Thomas Mowry, the medieval, you know, the, the Arthurian knight in The Search for the Grail. He's also... A reflection, uh, emanation, I guess, of Cervantes, Um, Sancho Panza, and, you know, the story of Sancho Panza and Don Quixote. Dave is the idealist, Don Don Quixote, in rusty armor, charging at windmills, and his sidekick is Cleep Purcell, or Sancho Panza, the trickster, who gets uh, even for the rest of us. Every high school. Has got one guy like Cleve Purcell. If you think back upon it, you remember that guy? All you had to do was dare him to do something, and he was on it. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter how bizarre or crazy it was. The kind of guy. Who is would a good kamikaze pilot in the Japanese Air Force? That <laughs> 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 guy is just sowing mayhem and chaos wherever he goes. I think, that, I think
1: that's a good description of Cleet.
2: <laughs> that's Cleet Purcell
1: so so you, you've mentioned you've mentioned in previous interviews that you write very instinctively in terms of plotting and narrative and i know, and I know you've taught writing in the past how would how would you describe your writing process to someone if they were sitting in your class as a student how does how does the the, the work um, happen for you
2: well it it, it 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 isn't really work if a person is, is let's say an artist it doesn't matter what art he pursues the medium is is irrelevant whether he's a sculptor a painter an actor a musician uh a poet a novelist yeah uh, that person knows that he has a gift and it seems like a presumption of vanity but he knows it and it's the way a ball player knows that he's a pitcher when he picks up the ball And it's like his fingers were made to curl around the stitches on that ball. And he doesn't care what other people think of him, whether they reject him. He he reaches a point in his life when he doesn't hear either the boos or the applause. That he knows that he was given a votive gift and it was extended to him by a hand outside of himself. Every artist knows that. And the day that he takes the gift for granted and the day he becomes vain about it and egocentric is the day he loses it. I have never seen the exception. The worst of the worst know that. They never tamper with it. But it's there for a reason. And so you don't, uh, you're never not writing. A, write, a real writer is always writing. I used to tell students that the, the way to learn to write dialogue is to listen. It's out there already. The, the lines are there. You have to hear them. And you can sit in a cafe and overhear people talking. You say, my heavens, this is out of Shakespeare. But a good writer is a good listener. You see, and, and the other advice I used to give students is never read bad writing. Only read the good guys, the people who did it well, whether it's William Shakespeare, or John Steinbeck, or James T. Farrell, or Stephen Crane, or, you know, we we have so many great American writers, we have the most literary tradition in the world. We're always praising the Brits and the Greeks and the, and the French, and yeah, they deserve praise, but I don't think, in the short period of our country's history, I mean, we've only been around a little over a couple hundred years, look at the writers America has produced they often find recognition overseas before they find it in their own home. But, you know, Faulkner was completely out of print uh, one year before he won, one or two years before the Nobel Prize was given him. He was on the cover of Time magazine in 1938. 1948, he was out of print. <laughs> I think the New York Times once referred to him as the poet of the southern dung heap. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> From the hometown crowd. Friend Charles in Miami, you know, <clears throat> he waited years to get a, time, a a review in the New York Times. And <clears throat> uh, I remember the, when the review ran, the first line was uh, Charles Williford's protagonist, a private eye. Uh, Charles w- Williford's protagonist, no, he's a homicide cop, uh, <clears throat> has no business, is a clod. Who has no business using psychology on anyone? Charles said, I waited 20 wait minutes for that Times review, and the guy calls my main character a quad. He <laughs> shouldn't use psychology on anyone. <laughs>
1: So so what are are you working on now? Are are you writing a novel?
2: Uh, I'm writing a sequel to uh, uh, Rubber's Show to the novel that's coming out January Uh, 2nd. I'm writing a sequel to it and its title is Ball and Chain from the song, you know, Ball and Chain, (laughs) Big Mama Thornton. um, My last three novels uh, were were a trilogy. They comprise a trilogy and I I, I think it's the best work I've ever done. The the three novels titled um, Wayfaring Stranger House of the Rising Sun and The Jealous Kind that I, I have... Or hopes to, or trying to, maybe organize something in the way of a cable series. But it, it's an epic story about the American West. But I think maybe Dave Robichaux And this is what other people say: this, this novel Robichaux is the best in the series. I believe it is. Yeah.
1: That's great. So, so what other what other advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening to this?
2: You never quit. You never quit. I learned a lesson when I was just a young guy. Uh, I worked offshore oil exploration a little bit, ten days on, five days off, and I didn't have a residence. When I get back on land, I just find a. You know, friends to stay with for five days, but I'd write all those five days, and I rented a mailbox at the post office in Lafayette, and I would put my stories and poems into envelopes before I went back on the quarterboat. boat. I'd mail them off the envelopes, and the rejections <laughs> would be waiting for me when I got off the hitch, when I came back on land. But I learned a system. Never let a manuscript stay home longer than 36 hours. One and a half days and it's back in the mail. You never give it up. If you leave your manuscript in a drawer, you assure that you will be a failure. You just leave it out there and you go on to the next piece of work you just wear them down and you never listen to the naysayers more people will try to discourage you than will try to encourage you and there are those who can really be mean and they sense sometimes as a gift in someone else that they will never have themselves and you don't listen to them did you ever see the film Amadeus, the story of uh, um, oh, uh, Mozart? Did you see that? Did, yeah. There was, yeah uh, it, it, it's the story of a, a genius who was, you know, uh, envied solinary, you know, who <laughs> he was so jolly, he despised uh, Amadeus and because he did not have the gift that Amadeus has. But that's what I mean when I say that you make a private contract with your higher power. You know you have the gift. And if you just stay true to your own vision, to your own inclinations as an artist, and uh, and if you write every day and try to make the world a better place with it, the success will find you. I remember something a great writer named Irving Stone once said Um, he came to our little writing group at SLI in 1956 and talked to about 10 or 11 of us and he said never write a poem uh, or a story to pay the light bill if you do you can be assured your utilities will be cut off. (laughs) Don't write for money because you'll never make any. The money and the fame find the author, but if he writes for those things, he will never have success of any kind.
1: That's good advice.
2: Yeah, it's...
1: So, so you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier you remember um, riding in the fifth grade and you also um, mentioned working offshore and, and then coming back and, and putting your stories in the mail. Um, do you remember like you, at what point, uh, at what age did you, did you finally, um, you know, after fifth grade, what, what age were you when you finally decided this is it for me and I'm going to try to pursue it? Um, didn't it have something to do with your cousin?
2: Yeah, with my cousin Andre Dubus. Andre was one great, one grade ahead of me. He was four months older than I, and one year ahead of me in school. But when he was a freshman at McNeese College in Lake Charles, he won first place in the Louisiana uh, Writing uh, College Writing uh, Competition, and I thought. I've got to give that a try, and the next year, when I was a freshman at Southwestern Louisiana Institute, uh, I entered a short story, and I won an honorable mention, and I was really very proud of that, and Andre and I, uh, and he's passed away now, but, um, you know, we were very close when we were young, and we always encouraged each other, and always, and, and Andre was Probably the best short story writer of his time. I still think he is. He wrote perhaps 20 stories that are perfect stories. Hemingway wrote probably five. Faulkner wrote five that are perfect stories. Andre wrote 20. But you see, he came along at a time when um, what was called metafiction was a fashion, and Ray Carver and Bob Bartholomew were more or less uh, icons at that time. I'm not taking away from them. And Ray Carver was a great writer, but Andre was better. Andre was leagues beyond the work of those guys, and they were great guys. Andre was, he wrote stories that are just haunting. You never forget them. Most of them are set in, around Boston or around Lafayette and Lake Charles. That's where he grew up.
1: And so, was that that kind of competition with him? Is that what kind of got you started?
2: No, it wasn't competition at mm-hmm. no, no. all. You don't compete with anybody. It's, mm-hmm. no, it's, no, nobody does that really. I mean, I, I mean, people say it for fun, but it's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. <laughs> it's. Uh, You know, it's, Ernest Hemingway put it this way, if you believe them when they say you're good, you have to believe them when they say you're bad. (laughs) 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 That's great, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is.
1: Well, well, again, we've been been speaking with James Lee Burke. His latest novel, Roboshow, is in bookstores today, so you can go grab a copy. And, Jim, thanks for doing this interview.
2: Jeff, yeah, thanks a million. It's nice to be in touch with you again. It's an honor to be on your show.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you.